Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 19th day of March 2017. As many of you know, the host of Coffee with Jeff is fascinated by film and film history. Today, Jeff continues what he started earlier this year in the second installment of Celluloid of the Strange and Unusual on the 122nd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I hope everybody's doing good today. Are you ready to hear me talk about film? Probably not, but I'm going to anyway. But before I get started, I got an email. Yes, somebody actually emailed Old Man Kelly. Ken asks the question, do you really drink coffee while doing the show? Well, Ken, the answer is most of the time. Most times I record my show on Saturday morning around 5 or 6 a.m. And then, yes, of course, it's coffee. But every now and again, things get a little busy and it prevents me from recording when I want to. So if I record late in the afternoon or early in the evening or anything like that, then it's usually water. Well, thank you for the question, Ken. And for the rest of you, feel free to ask me a question anytime. Remember, I'm at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com, and there's always Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. Now, before we get started, I thought I'd do something I hadn't done in a while, and that's some UFO news. Last Monday was the 20th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights. The Express newspaper website from the UK had this headline. Phoenix Lights. Mass UFO sighting 20 years ago is proof of E.T., says Alien Investigator. Now, my first thought was, Alien Investigator? Is that a pain gig? I mean, is that a real job? Or is it just some 16-year-old in his parents' basement? Anyway, here's the thing about the Phoenix Lights. There were two events that happened that night. First of all, a group of planes flying in a V-formation over Phoenix at night was mistaken for a V-shaped alien spacecraft. We know this because Mitch Stanley, a young man with a 10-inch telescope, spotted the planes in his backyard. He saw them clearly. But of course, at night, when viewed from the ground without the aid of a telescope, one could imagine these lights in a V-formation as one solid spacecraft V-shaped. Now later that evening, slow lights were seen falling from the skies and descending into the mountains. These were just a series of flares dropped by the Maryland Air National Guard over the North Track military range. That's been documented. Of course, even with witnesses and experts that can give these events a reasonable explanation, Many people still refuse to believe in common sense and insist on visitors from space. See, the problem with people who believe in conspiracies is, if there's any evidence or witnesses who are counter to what they want to believe, they're labeled as part of the conspiracy. Therefore, that evidence has to be ignored. 
Therefore, logic and reason can never win. It's the old, only evidence that supports my view of the situation is real evidence. Though that's pretty much how people view politics, but that's a different story. So, earlier in the week, we had one of our worst snowstorms of the year, but it's already started to melt away as things warm up. But it really doesn't matter to me, because I'm inside with a hot cup of coffee, and I get to do one of my favorite things in the world, and that's talk about movies. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The first film I'm going to talk about today is a six-minute film from 1902 called Life of an American Fireman. Now, I'm going to tell you the whole plot, so if you don't want it to be spoiled, you might want to go over to YouTube and watch it. I'll have a link in today's show notes for this episode. So, The plot is simple. A fire chief falls asleep at his desk and dreams of a mother putting her child to bed. It causes him to awake in an agitated state. There's a close-up of a street fire alarm box, and the hand of an unseen man opens it up and pulls the switch. We cut to a bunch of sleeping firemen who are awakened by the alarm and they jump into action. Quickly getting dressed, they slide down the pole and get their horse-pulled firefighting equipment ready. The impressive firefighting machines fly out of the fire station and take off down the road. Finally, they pull up at a burning house. A woman and child are trapped in a second-story bedroom. Our hero fireman runs into the bedroom and saves the woman through the window, climbing down a ladder to the ground. Once safe, she begs the fireman to go back in and save her child, which he does. We end with the mother and child hugging, knowing that they're safe from the burning flames. So why am I talking about a short, silent film made 115 years ago? Well, I find it a wonderful example of how quickly films were progressing from the 30-second slice-of-life films that were made only a few years earlier... And it also shows how far filmmaking had to go to become the films we all know and love today. The film was created by Edwin S. Porter for the Edison Manufacturing Company. It is said that Porter was originally hired by the Edison Company to bootleg other studios' films. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that the Edison Company wasn't above profiting from copying other people's work. But anyway, by the year 1900, Porter was in charge of film production for the Edison Manufacturing Company. And he began doing what everybody else was doing. And that was to put film into a camera, point it at something or somebody, crank the handle till the film ran out, which took about a minute, and then that was it. A movie was created. That all changed when he saw a film by Frenchman George Malaise called A Trip to the Moon. I'm sure you've seen that film. It's the one where the rocket goes into the moon's eye. The film is about 12 minutes long, and it's filled with special effects, and it uses various scenes to tell a story. Porter was thrilled with the idea that he could edit together multiple shots to create a chronological sequence of events. One of his first was Terrible Teddy, the Grizzly King, which was a satire about then-Vice President-elect Theodore Roosevelt. Now, it's often thought that Porter borrowed or was influenced by an English film called Fire from a year earlier, and that might be true, but 
At the time, stories about the heroes of the firefighting world were very popular. There was even a very successful magic lantern show called Bob the Fireman, so for the Edison Company to do a film about firemen was pretty much a natural thing. The film was a combination of stock footage, staged footage, and film shot when the opportunity presented itself to catch firemen in action. In fact, four different fire departments were used, and since the film was only six minutes long, it's likely that each shot uses different firemen and different equipment. And they were all real firemen, except the man who rescues the woman and child at the end. That's Arthur White. He was an executive for the Edison Manufacturing Company who dressed up as a fireman. And from what I've read, the Edison Company wasn't too happy that he appeared in the movie. Anyway, the film was a huge hit, and Porter followed it up with his most famous film, The Great Train Robbery. The film was shot the way most films were shot at the time, a very wide shot with the camera placed in the middle, sort of like it was an audience member in a theater that was sitting in the center front row. It still would take some time before filmmakers would realize the power of the camera, but there are a few shots in this film that showed that Porter was headed in that direction. At the beginning, we see a double exposure in which the fire chief is sleeping on the left side, and a circle showing what he's dreaming about is overlaid on the right side. There's also, of course, the close-up of the fire alarm box, which was rare at the time. And then at the end, something really amazing happens. As we see the firefighting equipment fly by, suddenly the camera follows one of the pieces of equipment over to the left, where we end up on the burning house. This was a pan shot. Now, back in 1902, any type of camera movement was very rare, so this was pretty big. Now, the thing about this film is for years it was lost, thought to be gone like so many silent films from the era. And through research, many people assumed that Porter had made the first film to use cross-cutting or parallel editing. You see, in the film, we see two sets of action that are happening at the same time. We have the woman and child inside the smoke-filled room, and we have the firemen outside the house. And if Porter had cut back and forth between the two, inside the house, then outside the house, then back inside the house, this would have been what's known as cross-cutting, and it would have been the first time it ever happened in film history. The idea that Porter used cross-cutting seems to have been confirmed when a print of the film was finally discovered in the Pathé archives in 1944. But soon, a paper print that was used to copyright the film with the Library of Congress, and then another full copy of the film that was discovered in 1977, confirmed otherwise. The film had all the action happen inside the house first, and then the action was repeated again from outside the house. Porter did not use cross-cutting. The Pathé version was probably re-edited at a later time, some say around 1910 when cross-cutting was a common technique. Though he would use cross-cutting in his next film, The Great Train Robbery. Life of an American Fireman is one of those must-watch films if, like me, you're into film history. How many of these suicides have you performed? Fifteen. What is your name? Harold. Harold Chasen. I'm Dame Marjorie Chardin, but you might call me Maud. I'm one of the great friends. 
Your mother tells me, Harold, that she's arranging several dates for you with some young ladies. How do you feel about that? Haven't had a dream. Tell me about yourself. What do you do when you aren't visiting funerals? Yes, there is definitely a certain attraction. I like to watch things grow. Grow and bloom fade and die and change into something else. The next film I'm going to talk about is the wonderful dark comedy known as Harold and Maude from 1971. This film was recommended by Regina, a friend from Facebook, and uh, thanks, G. Harold and Maude was one of those films that was a total failure when it came out, but has since become what is known as a cult classic. It seemed that back in 1971, people were not ready to see a 20-year-old man have a romantic relationship with an 80-year-old woman. (laughs) Imagine that. The story is of a young man named Harold Chasen, played by Bud Court, who lives with a socialite mother, played by Vivian Pickles. Harold is fascinated by death and often fakes his own suicide as a way to rebel against his mother. And by the time the film begins, his mother has learned to ignore his fake deaths, indicating that this has been going on for quite a long time. She attempts to fix him up with various ladies, but Harold does whatever he can to drive these women away. In one such scene, he is talking to his date calmly when he pulls out a meat cleaver and cuts off his own hand. Of course, it's all fake, but she didn't know that. Harold drives an old hearse and likes to attend strangers' funerals. And at these funerals, he begins to see a familiar face in a 79-year-old woman named Maud, played by Ruth Gordon, who also likes to attend funerals. The two quickly hook up. They become friends and lovers. And over time, Harold, through Maud, begins to learn to love life and get over his depression. There are so many wonderful scenes in this film like when his mother gets rid of the hearse and gives him a jaguar, so Harold uses welding equipment to turn his jaguar into a mini hearse. There is one scene where he's sent to his uncle, an, an army general who has lost his arm in the war, and he attempts to convince Harold to join the armed forces. Harold at first acts like he loves the idea, and he gets more and more excited and soon gives the impression of being a violent psychopath. Maud appears on the scene as sort of a peace-loving hippie, and, and Harold attacks her, killing Maud. Of course, that was all staged for the benefit of the uncle. The film began with a 20-year-old film student named Colin Higgins. He wrote it as a 20-minute drama for his master's thesis at UCLA. After college, Higgins was working for producer Edward Lewis as a pool boy. Lewis's wife, Mildred, read a script and was so impressed that she showed it to producer Stanley Jaffe at Paramount. One thing led to another, and soon Higgins was set to direct a film of his own script. This, however, didn't happen as, after some test footage was shot by Higgins, the studio heads at Paramount determined that he wasn't capable of directing a film. So they hired long-haired Hal Ashby to direct. Hal Ashby, who looked like a 60s hippie, was a former film editor who had just directed his first film a year earlier. Hal agreed to do the film on a couple of conditions. First, he needed screenwriter Colin Higgins' blessing, 
And second, Higgins would be involved in the production as co-producer so he could learn the art of filmmaking. Paramount agreed. Walter Edward Cox, better known as Bud Court, was born on March 29, 1948. He had been discovered by director Robert Altman, who gave him bit parts in a couple of his movies, M.A.S.H. and Brewster McCloud. At 20 years old, Bud went into the audition for Harold Maud, saw Hal Ashby, Colin Higgins, and producer Chuck Mulvihill, and said, I'm playing this part. Hal Ashby laughed and said, I guess you are. Ruth Gordon was born in 1896 and had been an extra in silent films. She was an American film, stage, and television actress, as well as a screenwriter and playwright. Before Harold Maude, she was probably best known for the 1969 film Rosemary's Baby, in which she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. After a long career, she was finally receiving fame by playing outspoken, feisty old ladies. She was 75 when she was cast as Maude. Now, a few facts about this film. There was originally supposed to be a love-making scene between the two, Harold and Maude. The scene was cut, and as the story goes, and this according to Mental Floss, Robert Evans, the head of Paramount, was married to actress Ellie McGraw, who had just recently starred in the film Love Story. It was Ellie who told Evans that the scene should be cut because it would repulse most audiences. Hal Ashby furiously objected, saying, That's sort of what this whole movie is about, a boy falling in love with an old woman. The sexual aspects doesn't have to be distasteful. Now, the scene was cut, but part of the scene can be found in the movie's trailer. Originally, a young musician was asked to write music for the film. He was a piano player named Elton John. When Elton decided to pass on the project, he suggested a friend of his, Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens wrote two songs that appear in the film, Don't Be Shy and If You Want to Sing, Sing Out. He also performed more of his music throughout the film as instrumentals. Apparently, during the shooting of the film, Ruth and Bud never had a close relationship. As Bud Court said in a 2001 issue of Vanity Fair, During the making of the film, Ruth was very standoffish. Then, the day my father died, the first call I got was from Ruth, saying, Let me tell you about the day my father died. And suddenly, we became the characters pretty much that we were in the film. We really became friends that night my father died. Oddly enough, he died waiting for me to show up on This Is Your Life, Ruth Gordon. When the film got to the editing stage, Paramount attempted to take the film away from Hal Ashby to edit it their own way. Ashby was devastated. Bud Court told Paramount that he would refuse to promote the film unless they gave control back to Ashby. They did, but for Bud Court, it would be over 40 years before he ever worked for Paramount again. The film was a box office bomb. Roger Ebert gave the film one and a half out of four stars. These days, the film is thought of as a little better. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a score of 86% based on 42 reviews, with the average score being 7.6 out of 10. For Bud Court, the film was both a blessing and a curse. I mean... He was 20 years old, and that was the highlight of his career. Though, to be fair, he's been involved with a couple nasty car accidents that have 
put his career on hold. Ruth Gordon passed away in her sleep in 1985 after making two successful films with Clint Eastwood, Every Which Way But Loose in 1978 and Any Which Way You Can in 1980. Hal Ashby's career began to suffer in later years as he had quite a drug problem. After giving up drugs and trying to get his career back on track, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which rapidly spread to his lungs, colon, and liver, and he died on December 27, 1988, in his home in Malibu, California. Colin Higgins had a successful but short career, including writing Silver Streak, Foul Play, 9 to 5, and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and he directed the last three. Higgins was openly gay, and he died of an AIDS-related death at his home on August 5, 1988. I think the film is fantastic, and if you like a good dark comedy that's totally weird, check out Harold and Maude. Ani to mi nejde. Tak co nám jde? Nic nám nejde. Co děláš? Panu. Jsem takhle jako pana, ne? Já jsem pana. Aha. Chápeš to? Nikdo nic nechápe. Nikdo nás nechápe. And the last film I'm going to talk about is a 1966 Czechoslovakian film written and directed by Vera Chikilova. I hope I pronounced her name right called Daisies. And for my friends of Moving On, I request you do this film on the podcast one day. Anyway, before I talk about this film, let me tell you a little something about myself. When it comes to film, I'll take the strange and unusual over the mediocre or even good anytime. I'd rather watch any Ed Wood film over any Michael Bay film. I mean, if I had my choice between Eraserhead and Independence Day, I'll take Eraserhead. If I find that I cannot describe a film to you, that, to me, makes the film all the better. Daisies is a film I find difficult to describe, and on top of that, it's strange and unusual. I find it extremely entertaining, and I'm not sure why. The film, I guess, could be called an experimental film from 1960s Czech New Wave Cinema. The story is about two young girls named Marie who pass themselves off as sisters, though I don't think really are. After a weird credit sequence which involves machinery and World War II war footage, the film opens in black and white with two girls sunbathing in front of a wall. Sound effects are added to their movements to give them a robotic quality, like rusty hinges every time they move their limbs. They decide that, since the world is bad, they have the right to be bad also. Once they make this proclamation, the squeaking stops. They set off on a series of pranks or stunts, like teasing old men, getting drunk in a nightclub, and and dancing barefoot on a table of food. Both girls have a certain charm that makes the film fun to watch, but beyond that... Director Vera Chitalova uses every style of filmmaking imaginable to tell the story. One minute it's black and white, the next it's color. Some scenes might switch from one to the other, then become tinted and oversaturated. Sepia tone, whatever. There are scenes with no dialogue at all, just music. Chitalova breaks every rule of editing in Daisies. The film jumps from one scenario to another, each one with its own look and feel, 
with strange transitions in between. The scenes are only loosely connected, and I'm not going to spoil this one for you because I want you to see this film. It's on YouTube, and I'll have a link to it in today's show notes. Though caution, the film is subtitled, but the film is only 74 minutes long, so it shouldn't be all that bad for you subtitle haters out there. Now, what is this film about? What's the message that Vera Chitilova was trying to make in this film? <laughs> don't ask me. Actually, I don't really care. But if I had to guess, I'd say it had something to do with the Cold War and Czechoslovakia being taken over by communism. In fact, this film was banned in Czechoslovakia, and Chitilova, who was the only female director in Czechoslovakia, was forbidden from making any more movies. She wouldn't direct another film until four years later. I've only recently begun to research Vera Chetilova, and from what I've read, she seems like a very interesting person. In an interview with her in The Guardian in the year 2000, she explained that she does not believe in feminism per se, but individualism. She said, If there's something you don't like, don't keep to the rules. Break them. I'm an enemy of both stupidity and simple-mindedness in both men and women, and I have to rid my living space of these traits. Apparently, she's been known to attack a cameraman who doesn't want to do what she wants to do. Now, I'm going to do something different today. You see, I do have a thought about the end of this film, about what's being said there, but I don't want to say it right now. So during the beginning of my next show, I'll give my interpretation of the end. So that means you, loyal listeners, have two weeks to check out Daisies. Just go to YouTube, put in Daisies 1966, and it'll come up. By the way, for those of you who might be on the fence about seeing this film, it's on Steven Schneider's 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. And I, I point out, he says, must see. The list also includes Harold and Maude. But not Life of an American Fireman. But The Great Train Robbery is, so I was close. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack. So if you're interested in Edwin Porter's Life of an American Fireman, I'm doing a three-part video series on my YouTube channel, Old Man Kelly on Film. Um, I published part one today that was about what led up to the movie being made, and part two will sort of be a running commentary. I'll show the film and talk about it to explain why I think some shots are interesting and what um, and, and certain shots that show that filmmakers still had a lot to learn, that type of thing. And then part three will be what happened to the film after it was released. It was lost and found, and there was some controversy over whether it was as special as people thought it was and that type of thing. So um, there'll be a link to my YouTube channel in the show notes for this episode. Feel free to check it out. I could use a few more subscribers. One thing about all three movies that we showed today, they were definitely a product of the time they came out. I don't think any of those films could have been made at any other time. And I like that. I like uh, when films has a feel of when it was made. You can Sometimes you can just watch a movie and, and just know what year it came out, even if you've never seen it before, or at least close to it. Um, well, I ran a little long today, so let's get on with the closing credits. You know, PsyCon is supported by listeners like you. Well, listeners that support our Patreon page. If you want to be one of our patrons, just go over to our our website. That's www.csicon.fm and, uh, and look for the little button that says Patreon. Click on there and you can become a monthly subscriber and you'll really be doing us a favor. 
But while you're at the PsyCon website, why don't you check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. And you know you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, feel free. I always like to answer questions during the show, so feel free to ask me a question. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page I would really like you to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and I know how that is, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars or something. That really helps out. And remember, all the links to the sources I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. And I mean that. I'll be back in two weeks with another exciting story. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream, didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff, coffee, coffee with Jeff, coffee with Jeff, coffee. 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 Coffee with Jeff